Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. In today's episode, we are interviewing Dr. Srini Pillay, He's the chief medical officer and co-founder of Roulet. Roulet is a video, XR, and metaverse solution for the reduction of stress, anxiety, and of course, stress-related diseases. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Pillay on the show. He's got an impressive resume as it pertains to reducing stress and anxiety. He's written several books and is an expert in cognitive mindset, which is undoubtedly positioned him well for VR and, of course, the work he's doing with Roulet. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pillay. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. It's lovely to be with you. I always like to start with an origin story, and that is what got you interested in this new emerging medium in the first place we call VR? Well, I've always been interested in um, technology, specifically as it relates to the intersection of science and art. Uh, and my background is that I'm a psychiatrist and a brain scientist, uh, also worked in organizations. I currently um, sort of work with organizations worldwide, helping them build teams that are more resilient, agile, and creative. Uh, but I'm also a musician and just finished writing a musical. And then when Patrick Candela, the CEO uh, of Roulet, called me up uh, and said he had some ideas because he had looked people up randomly and sort of was looking for someone who had a background in neuroscience and a background in organizational education um, and a background in medicine. He, we agreed to meet for a half hour. We spoke briefly on the phone. Um, and at that point, I was living in Boston. Um, when I came to New York, we planned to meet for a half hour and that turned into three, four hours and we haven't looked back since. So I think, uh, I think stumbling upon VR was serendipitous. But I think at, at my core, I was always interested in the intersection of science, art, and technology. Mm. You write a lot about personalizing mental health, and I know VR as a technology can do that. So talk to us a bit about kind of the meshing of making mental health more personalized and what VR might help in this um, genre. Sure. So you know, there are a couple of issues uh, that currently need addressing within the mental health sphere. One of them is that diagnoses uh, are highly reliable in that we can make diagnoses in any country because we have a set of criteria, but they, they have no validity. We have no understanding of whether there's, a, there's no tissue diagnosis. You know, like if you have a heart attack, you can see it in an EKG. If you have a cancer, you can do a biopsy and you can see that. But for psychiatric diagnosis, there's no way of seeing that. And as a result, to any two people with depression may have that diagnosis, but they could be completely different, yet they get treated the same. So that issue of lack of validity is, is a real problem. The, the second problem is that most medical research is done on groups. And the gold standard is what we call the double-blind placebo-controlled trial, meaning you try a medicine in one group, you try a placebo in another group, and you see if the medicine has a real effect. Well, at the end of that, you come up with a group finding. But let's say it works in 70% of people. 
Well, when you walk into my office, how do I know if you're part of the 70% or the 30%? I, I have no idea. So the group findings are relatively not helpful at all. They give you some general vague guidance, but when anybody walks into your office, you have no idea who they are. So because of those two problems, the lack of validity of diagnoses, um, and, and because of this, the, the fact that the group effect doesn't translate to the individual, it's much more important to think about how we can work with any given individual. So personalized medicine has to do with, if you come into my office and if I've done enough machine learning work that I know that uh, a, in general, let's say there's a male from Chicago who's married, who uses his cell phone 700 times a day, for that person, this treatment is more likely to be effective. Then I've personalized it because I've increased the chances that that's going to work for you. But even that doesn't really give us what we want. What we really want to do is create what we call ideographic solutions. And ideographic solutions are real-time interventions that impact you dynamically. Because even you are not the same today and tomorrow. You know, one day you may be in a good mood, another day you may be in a bad mood. Why do we assume that you are a static individual? And so generative artificial intelligence is really offers us the promise of delivering interventions to you in real time as your basic physiology is changing. And, and that's where I think personalization can take us to. It can take us away from this general group fi finding that doesn't really make any difference to something that is much more personalized. And I'll give you an example from mainstream medicine that a lot of people are not aware of. So if you look at LDL cholesterol, which you know, commonly we call bad cholesterol, most people, if you, if you, if you ask them, what, if you went to a doctor and your doctor said you had high LDL cholesterol, most people would say, well, you know, lower it then. Well, in a meta-analysis in the British Medical Journal, um, 16 of 19 studies showed that high LDL cholesterol either had no impact on getting a heart attack or it protected you from getting a heart attack. Now, there are also a bunch of other studies that tell you that high LDL is bad for you. So if you come to me and you say my LDL is high, I could lower it, but it might kill you. It might speed up your path toward death. Same thing with antioxidants. You know, On the surface, antioxidants sound great. Eat your greens, eat your vegetables, make sure you get these because they have lots of antioxidants that can kill toxic things in your body. That's great, but a lot of people are not aware that there are also a bunch of studies that show that antioxidants can accelerate malignant progression. They can increase the chances of cancer. So you come into my office, can I give you an antioxidant? Sure. Do I know what it's going to do? No. So medicine in large is operating in the dark with these group findings. And I think personalization is not optional. It's, it's necessary to move in that direction. Mm. I've tried some of Roulet's experiences, and many of them I personally found quite effective and soothing, you know, but post-pandemic, if we can say we're kind of out of the pandemic, lots of people sort of realized from a mental health perspective that they need people, they need to feel loved, they need connection. So, you know, if I play devil's advocate, are we asking people to partake in a solitary exercise like many of the mental health uh, VR programs, including if you think of TRIP as another one that many people are familiar with, is is this, you know, counterproductive to maybe what we know people need to get out of mental health problems? I think that's a good concern. 
Uh, and I have a couple of responses to that. Uh, so firstly, I just want to acknowledge what you said, which is that the post-pandemic, when you look at brains post-pandemic, what a, a recent study showed was that those brains were, even people who did not have COVID, had a higher rate of neuroinflammation. And the more information they had in their brains, the more fatigued they were. So if people are wondering, why am I so tired? Part of the reason is that neuroinflammation. And they looked at brains before lockdown and after lockdown. Before lockdown, that information was not there. After lockdown, the inflammation increased. Now, we know that social isolation can actually increase neuroinflammation. It's not the only factor. Diet, alcohol, exercise, sleep also play a role. But we do know that social isolation is not just a psychological factor. It actually influences your physiology. It can cause coronary calcification. So just to emphasize your point, that social isolation was a real problem. If you then say, well, is there any advantage to doing VR in isolation? I would say yes. And I think there are two advantages, but I also want to acknowledge the disadvantage. I think if you just stay isolated and you never interact with anybody, then that's a problem. I don't think that that's something Rule would want. I think Rule very much is using technology to enhance the human condition, not to replace the human condition. So in terms of how we use technology, uh, there, are, there are two things that I think, well, a few things, actually. The first is that uh, we did a study, a pilot study at Mayo Clinic, uh, where we asked, uh, these were really first responders, a lot of them were doctors, to, to uh, in, a, in a control study that's been published, to use Roulette. And what we were able to see is that these video experiences, both for video, just, just watching the video on an iPad, and for virtual reality, they were able to show statistically significant improvements in anxiety, in emotional distress, and in focus. And in fact, the doctors were believed so much in what the experience they had before the results came out. They called us up and said, we think you guys have a, have a cure for long COVID, which is brain fog. So, uh, the, so the brain fog, they believe, would really clear up because they went into those experiences feeling sort of very hazy and came out of it feeling very clear. So certainly, I think that that, that that study and another study that we did showed us that there are some advantages to Rule But recently, I've also been uh, talking about this with Krista Kim, who's a, a world-renowned digital artist uh, who, had, uh, who, who makes really beautiful NFTs. And she and I were at the World Economic Forum uh, speaking in the metaverse about the metaverse. And one of the things we talked about was the fact that the metaverse offers an opportunity to decrease the loneliness because you exist as an avatar. So you can actually, you don't have, you can be anonymous if you want to, for people who are socially um, anxious, for people who don't want to be identified. Uh, you can actually exist there. And initially, I'm not a big video game player. So my whole so thought about it was you know, avatar, my avatar, like how is this going to really be that great? Uh, and I was absolutely, I was completely shocked. I've become a complete believer in what the metaverse can offer, because the embodiment experience is almost immediate. And studies are now showing that if you, if you actually embody your character, you can, it can change how you feel. You know, they, for example, there were studies in, that, were, that were done specifically in overweight women. And what they found is if they chose an avatar that, they, that, they, that was an ideal avatar for them, they, they actually increased their physical activity. There were studies showing that that these avatars can have very profound effects on, on who you are. For example, outside of the metaverse, there was a study looking at creative stereotypes, asking the question, 
if you if you embodied the personality of a rigid librarian uh, versus an eccentric poet, would you be less creative or would it not matter? And what they found was the same person, when they embody the character of, of the eccentric poet, have statistically significant greater creativity compared to when they embody the character of a rigid librarian. Now, that's not to say that all librarians are rigid or that all poets are eccentric, but when you when you live when you stay outside of the self you think you are, this avatar experience can be very powerful in transforming who you are. So the metaverse, I believe, is is a is an incredible solution. If you look at this worldwide, seventy percent of people cannot access mental health care, and the metaverse doesn't require VR. You can be in the metaverse on on your mobile device. So fifty percent of people cannot afford it, and. For treatments like for anxiety, for example, the treatment response rate at best is 50%. So the metaverse offers an opportunity to access something in an affordable way and to have some kind of adjunctive care. But in addition to that, the metaverse, aside from its avatar experiences, also allows us to have a non-ordinary state of consciousness, as does virtual reality. So if you look at um, things like uh, mindfulness meditation, for example, you know, at the ends of our chromosomes are these little caps called telomeres. And as we get older, these telomeres get shorter and shorter, we get diseases, and then we die. But preliminary studies are showing that mindfulness meditation can protect the telomeres. In addition to that, we know that a recent study of transcendental meditation showed that it protected all 49 genes associated with inflammation and genes associated with immunity and the genes associated with oxygen carrying capacity of red cells, which is fatigue. So what we're thinking is that the metaverse and virtual reality are amazing contexts in which we can begin to explore non-ordinary states of consciousness and then correlate that with a protective effect, not just on the mind, but on the body. So my passion comes from understanding that the preliminary data in terms of reducing anxiety, improving focus, potentially changing consciousness, and this kind of avatar-based therapy are all extremely exciting to think about. However, I really like the caution that you're that you're presenting because the idea is, is not to get obsessed with the technology so that you feel disconnected from other people. Right? It's not to feel so taken by it that you get a headache. Uh, you know, you don't want to use the, the VR headset. Ideally, 20 to 30 minutes is, is a decent amount of time to, to be able to use it. You know, but as the technology improves and as the motion sickness pieces improve, there's a lot been done with that. In our Mayo Clinic study, zero out of 24 people had, had motion sickness. So it is possible to correct for some of the side effects. But I think your caution is really in order. It's, a, it's important to take this in context and to use it in context as well. In the same way that you wouldn't want to be with a therapist all day, every week, you probably wouldn't want to be with your technology device all day, every week either. When you unpacked all that, one of the things that I'm sure you get a lot of questions about is how long, like time, obviously, there, there's got to be a happy medium. And, you know, we've already alluded to, you know, how medicine is very personable. So it's probably a difficult question to ask, but I'm going to ask it. Is there is there a ballpark time that either an individual uh, goes into an experience or better yet, how many times a week? you feel they should be doing these repetitions for mindfulness or even, you know, inside the metaverse? So I, I think the recommendations for mindfulness are different than, and they're more clear because they've been studied. 
than than in the metaverse or in virtual reality. Uh, recently, Brown University has decided that its recommendation is 45 minutes once a day, every day. And that's because they found that the two 20-minute uh, periods, people found it hard to get to the afternoon time or were distracted by separating this out. But I would say the rule of thumb with mindfulness or transcendental meditation is two 20-minute periods or one 45-minute period. With VR, it's less, it's less certain, but the general recommendations are 20 to 30 minutes. And what we did with our Mayo Clinic study was we, we administered this three times a week. And so if you do this three times a week, it's probably helpful. What, what, we tend to, what I tend to think about this as, you know, we tend to think of our mental states as, as, as permanent, but you know, sometimes you have a bad day and sometimes your day is just fine and sometimes you have a great day. So I think that, that in the same way that there's no harm in using Tylenol when you need it, there's no harm in using VR or, or, or these relaxing videos when you need them, you know, on an as-needed basis. But I think if you are into a general mental practice and you want to make sure that you can mentally reset, uh, I think our roulette experiences are actually five minutes, 10 minutes, and then we have a one and a half minute stream. So 10 minutes is the maximum experience that we were able to show had an actual impact on how people were feeling. I also want to talk about what a person should or shouldn't be doing in a meditative experience. Because I know in your book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, you talk about the importance of how, you know, specific kinds of planned unfocus stimulate what you call cognitive calmness. So they help, you say, jumpstart productivity, they help enhance innovation, they also might inspire creativity, and then improve our long-term memory. But when we look at some VR experiences, they're quite passive and maybe don't sort of fit this idea of tinker, dabble, doodle, try. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So in, in terms of, is your question specifically um, how to be strategically unfocused or um, what an ideal VR experience would be? Yeah, maybe both. Because again, uh, as a design teacher for many years and someone that uses ed tech I, I do see this in especially middle school and high school kids where, you know, for them to be passive is really difficult and they, they need to, you know, almost fidget a little bit to stay focused. So, you know, when we design VR experiences, is that something we should be keeping in consideration or ultimately to get someone into maybe a state of flow and a state of calmness, they really need to be just doing nothing? So I think it depends a little bit on um, what the context is. So in terms, I mean, most people live their lives with sort of focus, 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 fatigue, right? and then they're out for the count. But, you know, you wouldn't drive your car across the country. Why would you think your brain doesn't need some kind of refueling? So that book is about focusing, unfocusing, focusing, unfocusing strategically. So some ways in which you can strategically unfocus, and of course we all need focus. Focus is extremely important, but there are problems with focus as well. You know, focus can really drain your brain of energy so that you stop caring about people by the end of the day. You know, focus can also prevent you from seeing what's going on around you. It can prevent you from seeing upcoming trends. It can prevent you from being more creative because when you're creative, you need to connect things. And it prevents you from being more self-connected because in the brain, the unfocused network is one of the networks that really codes for self. So 
you know, sometimes people will say, I have, I have my best ideas in the shower. And it's like, well, why is that? Because you're not focusing. So you're out of your prefrontal cortex. And now you're in this DMN, which we used to think was the do mostly nothing network. But it's actually the default mode network. And it is, it is superior to the prefrontal cortex in terms of level of detail of experience. It goes into the nooks and crannies of your brain, picks up memories that the prefrontal cortex could never find. And it's much better at abstract thinking. And it's also called the crystal ball of the human brain. So it's much better at predicting. So when you build strategic unfocus, you're activating this brain. So to answer the second part of your question, it is important to be, to be able to do nothing. Now, what does this nothing constitute? Probably the easiest form is a 15-minute booster break where you go, you do some kind of rigorous physical activity. This has been shown to really refresh people, increase social connection. And if you do this daily for a few months, you probably will see a result. The other thing is, is napping. Five to 15 minutes of napping gives you one to three hours of clarity. And sometimes when you're in the middle of the afternoon and you're trying to get through the day, it's, it's difficult to do that. But if you just nap for five to 15 minutes, you can actually get through with your brain refueled. Now, if you want to be more creative, it's more difficult. It's probably take about 90 minutes to be, to be because you've got, to, you've got to go through a full sleep cycle. And you have to be careful that you're not napping and disrupting your sleep because that can cause cardiac problems if you're not sleeping properly. Then, then there's doodling, just scribbling on a piece of paper. Um, you know, that Jackie Andrade and her colleagues found that 29, it, it improved memory by 29%. Then there's what we call positive constructive daydreaming. So Jerome Singer in the 1950s studied this and found that if you're just sitting at your desk and daydreaming, it's probably not that helpful. If you are daydreaming because you're thinking about the prior night's indiscretions, you know, why did I say this? And maybe I had too much to drink. That's also not that helpful. But if you are engaged in positive, constructive daydreaming, this can be super helpful. So what is that? You set aside about 20 minutes. You do something low-key that, that, that you like, like knitting, gardening, or walking. And then you let your mind flow into something positive and wishful, like running through the woods with your dog or lying on a yacht. And then your perception is decoupled from the outside. And now you're wandering internally. Uh, there are disadvantages to mind wandering as well. Mind wandering out of context can actually increase your depression and anxiety because you might be ruminative. So for everything in medicine, there's a there's a counter argument. In terms of how to engage, how to how to develop VR experiences, I do think that a lot of people would like them to be more interactive, so that they're not you're not just you know passively going through a particular scene. And I think you know personalization will help us understand who does you know passive experience help. Who does active engagement help? In the metaverse, you certainly can engage. You know, when I was in the World Economic Forum meeting, I didn't anticipate how frightening this the kind of activity could be because you know, other avatars can come right close to you. And I was in VR, and then and then they can get they it's, they could actually go through you. And because you're used to a sense of personal space and you're you're identified with that, it's the interaction can be too much. So. You have to think a little bit about how to design these experiences. I believe that both active and passive experiences should be tested. And I think at certain times of the day, passive experiences will be great. You, know, you come home and you're like, I just want to be disconnected from the world. And then that's great. But if you, want to, if you want a break and you're one of those people who gets easily bored, then having a break where you're engaged could be preferable to you. It, it depends on what outcome you're looking for and what outcome you're measuring. I see 
from various forums how VR has been used for pain reduction. So you see VR maybe being used and put on a patient when they're going through uh, you know, a burn victim and trying to remove the skin. And we're also seeing ideas where VR might be actually uh, applied as a, um, what do you call it? Uh, almost like a prescription. You could write a prescription for someone, which then ties into this sort of almost a, this political connection of, you know, do you think there'll be a day where insurance companies would actually, if you're on a medic plan, um, give uh, insurance money to people to get either through your psychological VR or, again, maybe as a pain relief? Is that day coming, do you think? It's already come. So uh, as of now, there are some prescription digital therapeutic companies that have engaged insurance companies who are willing to pay for them because they've been able to demonstrate efficacy. Right now, the, the CPT code for that is actually, uh, so in order to get reimbursed, you need a code. And the code is for adjunctive treatment. So it's not for individual treatment. However, the wheels are, the, 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 there's a process in play, which I think will happen in the next year or, or two, where digital therapeutics will be approved for reimbursement. But I think it depends on, you, we're going to have to educate healthcare workers that digital therapeutics can work and, and, then, and, and then also demonstrate in an ongoing way that this can have some kind of effect that impacts both the financial bottom line and the well-being of the person who's using it. Wow, amazing. That'll be cool. Is there anything else, I'm mindful of time, that maybe we haven't talked about that you think people who are looking into VR for uh, anxiety reducing, you know, anything else maybe that we haven't talked about that you think might be pertinent? Well, one of the things that I think I find, given that my background's in psychiatry, uh, even though I work in biotechnology across medicine, um, I believe less and less in this construct of mental health because I don't think that the brain stops functioning at the level of the neck. What we're finding for anxiety, for, for schizophrenia, for bipolar disorder, PTSD, when you look closely at all of those syndromes, there's an abnormality in inflammation. So what it's telling us is that that abnormality in inflammation is actually, is actually correlated with the, with the emotional expression. A recent study also looked at genes for bowel disorders like irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. And then they looked at the genes in psychiatric disorders and they found that there was a tremendous overlap. Meaning that when you have these abnormalities in genes, things happen in your physiology. It leads one person to develop a bowel disease and another person to develop what we now call a psychiatric disease. So I believe that we are at an age where we need a complete recategorization of what we call these mental illnesses, because we need to acknowledge that there are brain substrates behind this, there are genetic substrates behind this, that there are inflammatory abnormalities. And by sometimes by addressing the gut, for example, we might be able to change what's going on in the brain. So if anyone out there is sort of experiencing um, a mental illness, uh, aside from knowing that you're not alone, certainly when it comes to anxiety, at least 31% of people will develop an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. I think it's important to know that the science is ongoing and that we're beginning to find that what we used to think was purely mental is actually something that's a whole body phenomenon. And when it comes to VR, what I'm excited about is that it's, it's as far as I can see, it is the only modality that, that can involve embodiment 
where your whole body is in an experience at the same time. You know, pills go in through the mouth and then they go into your circulation. But at the same time, your entire body can be immersed. And that's a very interesting area to think about as we're thinking about designing interventions to change both the way we think and feel and what's going on at a basic genetic and inflammatory level. Wow, so much to think about. Dr. Pillay, thank you so much for coming on the show and unpacking, especially some of the science behind all this. I'm very appreciative. I love the medium, and I think uh, getting experts experts like you on the show to talk more about how, you know, and the studies behind why is so uh, key and important. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Craig. It was really lovely talking to you. Bye for now. <laughs>